Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, you are listening to Out of the Blue. My name is Morgan, I'll be bringing you today's show. We'll be talking all things marine science and the marine environment. Now, a few weeks ago, David Speller joined me on the show and he actually gave me the first ever interview of Out of the Blue. So the interview is really interesting. It's with Dr. Mark Norman, who was with the Melbourne Museum at the time. Um, And he's someone who also just recently joined Parks Victoria and a really great advocate for the marine science and marine environment. So do stick around and listen to that interview as well as I'll be telling you about the new marine park in Hawaii. So stick around. Hope you're enjoying this Sunday. So a few weeks ago, I received the first ever interview of Out of the Blue, um, which featured Mark, Dr. Mark Norman from the Melbourne Museum, and here's the interview now. Now, if you caught up with uh, that fantastic telly movie that was on a few weeks ago called The Beast, that uh, latest offering from Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, then you could be forgiven for thinking that uh, perhaps giant squid were going to be lunging upon our beaches, ripping and tearing poor unsuspecting grandmothers and young children from bayside beaches and ocean beaches into greater depths. Uh, We thought that today we'd catch up with Dr Mark Norman from the University of Melbourne and the Museum of Victoria to find out some of the fact 
behind the fiction of uh, that spectacular telly movie. Uh, but before that, Anthony, can you give us a bit of a background to exactly what this was all about? Yeah, well, I think it was on, it was on TV well, it'd be a couple of weeks ago now. And it was one of those wonderful telly movies that were, well, possibly quite high budget, but relatively low quality. And um, <laughs> essentially what it was was just another Jaws and Orca movie rolled into one, but with a squid. And so there's a giant squid from the deep that is killing people. Um, its baby gets killed and it gets annoyed, so it comes back to hunt down the people that killed the baby. And in the end, it gets blown up with a big tin of petrol. So that's essentially the storyline of the entire thing. And I suppose we've dragged you in today, Mark, to ask you a bit of few facts behind the fiction, you know, how much of it was true. And do we need to fear for our lives when we're out there at St Kilda Beach? Well, I think we're fairly safe at this stage. <laughs> we won't be attacked by these giant blobs of plasticine in the bay. Um, they normally occur at like 500 metres, 1,000 metres down, so unless there's a really deep point in Port Phillip Bay, I think we're okay for now, basically. So there is a giant squid? It's a real creature? Oh, there's definitely lots of giant squids. We don't know much about them. We've had three come into the museum this year, and the last one was... Of their own accord? They of their own accord, <laughs> <laughs> They didn't pay. It was so annoying. We had to get security onto them, and the last one was 15 metres long, so it was quite a job for security. 15 metres? That, that's that's, uh, that's sizeable. That's well, huge. it's interesting when you look at that movie because um, they sort of said, oh, this one's like 30 metres long, and they showed it, and it was really solid. It was spinning little trawlers around and all sorts of things, but... When they say a giant squid's 15 metres, there's about four or five metres that's the body and the eight normal arms, and then there's these two enormously long shooting tentacles that are like 10 metres long, and so that's the bit that gives them the length, but it weighed 220 kilograms, which is pretty heavy, but it's not in the tonnes, really. So those tentacles, I mean, the, what, do they, the, what does the squid actually use them for? Because in the movie, what the, what the mother squid used it for was to reach into the pool where the baby squid was being kept and patted it. Yeah. Is that what they do with them? Well, they're amazing. They can work laptop computers, they can do Rubik's Cubes, all sorts of things. But no, mainly they, um, they've got press studs down the insides of these long tentacles, and they sort of can link the bases, the shafts of the tentacles together. So at the end, there's about a half metre to metre long sort of club covered in big suckers with sharp hooks around the edges of them and the end becomes this sort of clapping sort of claw. So the, you mentioned hooks, you mentioned hooks on those tentacles. Now the um, giant squid actually had big, big hooks well, on the tentacles The bits too. I saw of the show, because I couldn't handle it too well, I got very <laughs> squirmy. Um, they talked about how they had these big scythe-like hooks on the tentacles that they found one off the baby that looked like a big kind of claw. Um, they actually occur on other squids, littler squids, but they don't occur on giant squids. Giant squids have got round suckers, suckers about the size of a um, tennis ball, say, and it's got a ring in it with hooks all the way around the edge of it, so it's sort of like it helps grip with the teeth and the suction. So it's pretty scary. You said there were three found. Have they all been 15 metres? Or are they no, there was a 10 metre one, a 12 metre one, and a 15 metre one, and they were all caught in orange roughy nets, so um, they probably were hit live at about 500 metres So they're caught by, Tassie, by yeah. fishing operations, Commercial basically. Commercial fishermen, yeah. Well, I mean, this is really unusual because you, you read textbooks and they say, you know, only found from beach wash or only found on, you know, when they've been rotting masses and they've looked like you know, a bit of beach combing debris. So this yeah, is well really... Yeah, well, I think it's actually a sign of what's happening with our fisheries because we're heading into deeper waters more as the shallow water fisheries disappear. We're heading into things like orange roughy fisheries. And to make a really kind of interesting association is that in South Africa they're just starting to investigate their deeper water fisheries they're heading into these deeper water trawl fisheries 
and they're finding they've caught 10 giant squids so far this oh, year that have turned wow. up at the South African Museum. So it just shows that they're sort of, as things disappear, they're heading deeper and deeper and they're going to run out of stock soon. So just to put that in perspective, how many giant squid have been caught, say, in the last century? Well, there was a guy who summarised all the known ones in a paper in 1992 and he listed 27. So and just mm. our two places have picked up 13. And I know New Zealand's got at least 10 or 12 in the last couple of years. And do we not find them because they live right at the bottom and they never come up? Yeah, really deep water. So they're living down in kind of black water at half a kilometre to a kilometre deep, perhaps a bit deeper in some cases. And they don't, yeah, they don't ever move into surface waters. And the place that goes most, they're most often found is off Newfoundland in Canada, where it's so steep on the shore that they just float to the surface as they die and they end up right next to a marine lab. And you made a really interesting point in that uh, we could be overfishing them because I guess in the deep sea where there's little light, no plants, less food, less fish, so the chances are that there are actually very few giant squid. It's just impossible to tell. Sperm whales seem to be able to find them quite regularly and sperm whale stomachs regularly have giant squid beaks in them. So. I think they're down there. I think there's all the issues of net avoidance. They can probably swim faster than a slow yeah, net. Yeah. Um, and just, they're, yeah, they're top predators. They're probably scattered. And how smart are they? The really intelligent ones are the octopuses. They've got a much bigger brain to weight, to body weight kind of ratio, whereas the squids are more the sort of, um, <laughs> I don't know, go fast, kind of nail things, eat a lot, not do kind of problem-solving skills. Or, like <laughs> octopuses have been recorded with tool use and all these sort of learning no. skills and all sorts of tool things. Tool use? Yeah, we have a, got uh, to follow <laughs> this one up, please. They can strip a motorcycle in 10 minutes. <laughs> no, there's a report from last century of a woman watching an octopus with a, um, a clam and the octopus waited till the clam opened to start feeding and it slipped a small rock in to hold the clam open Ooh. and then oh. crawled inside the clam to sort of eat out the animal on the inside. Oh. So tool use is only otherwise found in things like bowerbirds and monkeys, monkeys and yeah. humans. And Peter Benchley used the wrong animal. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. the next one's probably going to be giant The The other thing which I wanted to pick up was the tongue. This, this, the beast uh, actually had the most fantastic... Uh, the tongue's good, but I think the call was even more amazing. I've never heard that squealing out of any squid or octopus. So putting the call aside for a moment, what do they actually use the tongue for? They have to chop their food up really fine <laughs> because all the squid and octopus accidentally evolve with their brain completely surrounding around their esophagus. And so it's sort of like their esophagus goes through this donut-shaped brain, and so they have to chew their food in a really fine mulch so they don't get ice cream headache every time they swallow. So they kind of use the beak and the tongue, which is covered in all these really sharp teeth, to sort of chainsaw it up into a puree to swallow gently. I was going to ask, but are these things edible? I mean, has anyone ever tried to eat a uh, giant squid? I mean, is um, this the, yeah. calamari rings the size of truck tyres? You know? Yeah, the, the problem is they're full of ammonia, so it's sort of like oh. calamari rings the size of truck tyres that taste like floor cleaner. <laughs> this was actually discovered by my supervisor at the museum, who um, during his PhD dinner to celebrate finishing his PhD in Canada, um, decided as a treat for all the examiners he'd serve giant squid steaks and so oh he'd taken fresh giant squid steaks out and sort of sauteed them. <laughs> the fact that it didn't hurt his eyes as all the ammonia was pouring out, I've got no idea, but in the end they tried it and all sort of went, kind of spat it out everywhere. And one man there, an examiner, ended up saying, can I take a sample of my dinner please? And he took it back to the Plymouth lab and demonstrated that it was full of ammonia. So when we had the latest one in and we were cutting open the mantle, we thought, well I wonder if you can actually smell or taste the ammonia. And you couldn't actually smell it, but we just licked a little bit of fresh meat. <laughs> and like for three days, you're going, <laughs> 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 kind of gross intestinal problems. What 
colours? I mean, when they're alive, I mean, squid and octopus have fantastic colours. Um, would it be the same with giant squid? Well, the, the last one that came in was in really good condition. Most of the skin was on it. And so we could see that the whole body's covered in a really deep maroon, brown, maroon, almost sort of blood red kind of colour right over the entire body. And that's all made up of those little chromatophores. They can expand and contract to do colour changes. So I imagine they can go from lighter to darker, but it doesn't look like they do the really complex ones of the wonderful octopuses. That one, of the, one of the things that did come up in the film was the, that they used the essence of the dead baby to attract the mother at one point. Now, I suppose that's some kind of a pheromone. Is that actually possible? I mean, do squids have those kind of senses? Well, squid and octopus have these funny little pits, sort of like nostrils on the sides of their um, opening to their mantle so that their body, all their organs are held in sort of a pouch out the back and there's a little cavity full of gills and that's what they pump the water in and out over the gills for oxygen and that's what they harness for jet propulsion but at the borders of the opening to that there's two little nostrils and it's like they're sort of smelling with the sides of this as they're drawing water in so perhaps they can follow kind of fumes or smell kind of plumes down the and what about that, that whole idea that the mother was actually seeking revenge? Uh, no, no, I don't think the revenge concept works very well, actually. But what, what about, like, though, some level of kind of parent-child bonding? Well, or all, the like squids, uh, all the squids just dump their eggs on the bottom and run away. Oh. They don't give a toss. The eggs kind of just <laughs> And then what do they around. do? They die? The adults do, yeah. They only breed once. They spawn once and then they die. So that latest female we got that was 220 kilograms was still immature but she had three kilograms of ovary, so it was sort of starting to flesh out, ready for a spawning, a spawning kind of event. But they only do it once and snuff it, and the males do similar sorts of things. Oh, I mean, the, coming back, is there some reality in the beast? I, mean, I remember when I was working at the Museum of Victoria, reading this letter that had been sent in to one of the curators um, from an old man who was down at Inverloch who swears that his cocker spaniel was actually taken by a giant squid off the beach one morning. Um, there's a story out of the States of a dog being harassed by a big octopus on the, on the shores where the dog went down and started barking hell out of this kind of big octopus trapped in a shallow pool and the octopus got a kind of tentacle up on, onto bits of the dog and was trying to grip onto it but the dog survived and the man who wrote up the story said thank god that dog saved me from this killer this is quite interesting is the perception of things of the sea i mean we've seen orca jaws now we've seen the giant squid i mean it, it's it seems to me to be quite amazing that constantly it's just this reoccurring thing well that comes i, through from the I like think we have this book. monster mentality or monster mythology where they have to be these big meanies and it's interesting that the big ones in the states they used to have these big skin diver kind of contests with them and fighting them and all this sort of stuff turns out they're docile like a domestic cow the bigger they get. So it was sort of like strangling to death your favourite pet cow, Daisy, <laughs> to prove how big a man you were. So now they've actually turned it around and made reserves to protect those big ockies. Mark Norman, it's been a pleasure having you in as usual. Uh, we'll much. catch up with you, I'm sure, very, very soon again. You are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR 855 AM. Thank you so much for David Speller for that interview. And what a great knowledge into the fascinating life of the marine environment. Do stick around. We'll be back right after this song. This panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. 
as the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! Good morning, you are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR 855 AM and that song there was I Walk the Line from Chris Wilson, a bit different to the Johnny Cash original. So a short time ago, Barack Obama announced the creation of the world's largest marine protected area by expanding the existing ocean reserve off Hawaii to cover over 582,000 square miles. The sweeping move quadruples the size of the Papahaya. Now, I'm going to have a bit of difficulty saying this, so stick with me. Papahanae Mokuakea Marine National Monument, which was originally designated by George W. Bush in 2006 and was declared a World Heritage Site in 2010. Doubling the size of Texas, stretching outwards from the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, it includes the Midway Atoll, which is famed for the use in the Second World War. Previously, the largest marine reserve was at the Pitcairn Islands, which was announced by the UK last year. The move comes as a strong push by conservationists following the recent research that discovered new species and important ecological connection to the area. A major concern was the impact of ocean acidification, coral decline, which is due to the warming temperatures that would cause enough stress on the environment there. The White House said the decision will provide critical protections for more than 7,000 marine species, a quarter of them found nowhere else in the world. Swaths of black coral, the world's longest living marine species at more than 4,500 years, will also be protected may also be seen as the final move by President Obama, who was born in Hawaii, as he will soon leave the White House. The enlarged Papahane Mokuakia monument contains a number of treasures, including the endangered Hawaiian monk seal and the Laysan duck, which is the world's most endangered duck. The region includes six huge underwater volcanoes, one nearly 14,000 feet high, and the USS Yorktown, which sank during the Battle of Midway and was discovered in 1998. Many issues of the region include the potential interest to mining due to the seabeds in the region containing deposits of nickel, zinc and titanium. The challenges of overfishing and a plague of plastic pollution are also major stresses to the area. The move has been praised by conservationists as it protects an area of rich biodiversity, historical and cultural importance. But some marine scientists are saying this is actually bad for species. So British and US marine scientists say that the race to designate ever bigger marine national parks in remote parts of the world could work against conservation. 
Peter Jones, a marine researcher at University College London, says it is not enough to simply cover the remotest parts of our ocean in national protection. We need to focus on seas closer to shore where most of the fishing and drilling actually happens. In the past five years, over 20 huge new marine parks have been designated by countries, including Britain, in response to calls by marine scientists to protect more of the oceans. The Papahana Amuk Kuaikia Park off Hawaii covers the world's longest and most remote chain of coral islands. It covers an area larger than all U.S. countries' national parks combined. Only about 4% of the world's oceans are protected, which includes a few large areas such as the Papahanaumokuakea Park and the thousands of small protected areas such as some from the Port Phillip Bay, including Jawbow Marine Sanctuary and Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuary. The researchers in the paper argue that it isn't only the size of the protected area that matters. It's the representative, effective and near-shore areas. In 2010, at the Convention for Biological Diversity meeting in Japan, a global target of 10% was agreed to, by, to be reached by 2020. But what has happened, say the authors, is that countries have taken the politically easy route, creating vast parks in remote places without taking into account their conservation value or their ability or country's willingness to police them. The authors emphasise that they do not discourage the designation of vast remote MPAs, but fear that by focusing on size could divert attention, political will and resources from the need for smaller MPAs in seas that are being overfished. Last year, the UK said it would create what was then the world's largest continuous marine reserve around the Pitcairn Islands. And another huge protected area was designated around Assisian Islands in January 2016. Chile, France and New Zealand have all made similar moves, turning the waters surrounding their remotest island territories into huge nature reserves. We're also very lucky in Victoria. We have some really fantastic marine protected areas that were designated in 2002. There's a whole range of ecosystems that are available in those marine parks as well. So thank you so much for listening to today's show on Out of the Blue. Please stick around for Out of the Pan coming up next with Sally. We'll be back next week at 11.30 with Out of the Blue. Enjoy your Sunday.